Chapter 11 The time now approached for Lady Russell's return. The day was even fixed, and Anne, being engaged to join her as soon as she was resettled, was looking forward to an early removal to Kellynch, and beginning to think how her own comfort was likely to be affected by it. It would place her in the same village with Captain Wentworth, within half a mile of him. They would have to frequent the same church, and there must be intercourse between the two families. This was against her, but, on the other hand, he spent so much of his time at Uppercross that in removing thence she might be considered rather as leaving him behind than as going towards him. And, upon the whole, she believed she must, on this interesting question, be the gainer, almost as certainly as in her change of domestic society in leaving poor Mary for Lady Russell. She wished it might be possible for her to avoid ever seeing Captain Wentworth at the hall. Those rooms had witnessed former meetings which would be brought too painfully before her, but she was yet more anxious for the possibility of Lady Russell and Captain Wentworth never meeting in anywhere. They did not like each other, and no renewal of acquaintance now could do any good, and were Lady Russell to see them together, she might think that he had too much self-possession, and she too little. These points formed her chief solicitude in anticipating her removal from Upper Cross, where she felt she had been stationed quite long enough. Her usefulness to little Charles would always give some sweetness to the memory of her two months' visit there, but he was gaining strength apace, and she had nothing else to stay for. The conclusion of her visit, however, was diversified in a way which she had not at all imagined. Captain Wentworth, after being unseen and unheard of at Upper Cross for two whole days, appeared again among them to justify himself by a relation of what had kept him away. A letter from his friend, Captain Harville, having found him out at last, had brought intelligence of Captain Harville's being settled with his family at Lyme for the winter, of their being, therefore, quite unknowingly within twenty miles of each other. Captain Harville had never been in good health since a severe wound which he received two years before, and Captain Wentworth's anxiety to see him had determined him to go immediately to Lyme. He had been there for twenty-four hours. His acquittal was complete, his friendship warmly honored, a lively interest excited for his friend, and his description of the fine country about Lyme so feelingly attended to by the party that an earnest desire to see Lyme themselves and a project for going thither was the consequence. The young people were all wild to see Lyme. Captain Wentworth talked of going there again himself. It was only seventeen miles from Uppercross, uh, though November, the weather was by no means bad, and in short, Louisa, who was the most eager of the eager, having formed the resolution to go, and besides the pleasure of doing as she liked, being now armed with the idea of merit in maintaining her own way, bore down all the wishes of her father and mother for putting it off till summer, and to Lyme they were to go. Charles, Mary, Anne, Henrietta, Louisa, and Captain Wentworth. The first heedless scheme had been to go in the morning and return at night, but to this Mr. Musgrove, for the sake of his horses, would not consent. And when it came to, the rationally, to be rationally considered, a day in the middle of November would not leave much time for seeing a new place, after deducing seven hours, after deducting seven hours as the nature of the country required for going and returning. They were consequently to stay the night there, and not to be back, expected back till the next day's dinner. This was felt to be a considerable amendment, and though they all met at the great house at rather an early breakfast hour, and set off very punctually, 
It was so much past noon before the two carriages, Mr. Musgrove's coach containing the four ladies, and Charles' curricle, in which he drove Captain Wentworth, were descending the long hill into Lyme, and entering upon the still steeper street of the town itself, that it was very evident they would not have more than time for looking about them before the light and warmth of the day were gone. After securing accommodations and ordering a dinner at one of the inns, the next thing to be done was unquestionably to walk directly down to the sea. They were come too late in the year for any amusement or variety which Lyme, as a public place, might offer. The rooms were shut up, the lodgers almost all gone, scarcely any family but of the resident, residents left, and as there is nothing to admire in the buildings themselves, the remarkable situation of the town, the principal street almost hurrying into the water, the walk to the cob, skirting around the, the pleasant little bay, which in the season is animated with bathing machines and company, the cob itself, its old wonders and new improvements, with the very beautiful line of cliffs stretching out to the east of the town, are what the stranger's eye will seek. And a very strange stranger it must be, who does not see charms in the immediate environs of Lyme, to make him wish to know it better. The scenes in its neighborhood charmeth, with its high grounds and extensive sweeps of country, and still more its sweet retired bay, backed by dark cliffs, where fragments of low rock among the sands where fragments of low rock among the sands make it the happiest spot for watching the flow of the tide, for sitting in unwearied contemplation. The woody varieties of the cheerful village of Uplime, and above all Penny, with its great chasms between with its green chasms between romantic rocks, where the scattered forest trees and orchids of luxuriant growth declare that many a generation must have passed away since the first partial falling of the cliff prepare the ground for such a state, where a scene so wonderful and so lovely is exhibited, as many more than equal any of the resemblance, re resembling scenes of the far-famed Isle of Wight, these places must be visited and visited again to make the worth of Lyme understood. The party from Uppercross passed down by the now deserted and melancholy-looking rooms, and still descending, soon found themselves on the seashore, and ling lingering only, as all must linger and gaze on the first return to the sea, whoever deserved to look on it at all, proceeded toward the cob, equally their object in itself and on Captain Wentworth's account. For in a small house, near the foot of an old pier of unknown date, were the, har were the Harvilles settled. Captain Wentworth turned in to call on his friend. The others walked on, and he to join them on the cob, and he was to join them on the cob. They were by no means tired of wandering and admiring, and not even Louisa seemed to feel that they had parted with Captain Wentworth long, when they saw him coming after them, with three companions, all well known already by description to be Captain and Mrs. Harville, and a Captain Bennock, who was staying with them. Captain Bennock had some time ago been first lieutenant of the Laconia, and the account which Captain Wentworth had given him, on his return from Lyme before, his warm praise of him as an excellent young man and an officer, whom he had always valued highly, which must be, have stamped him well in the esteem of every listener, had been followed by a little history, history of his private life, which rendered him perfectly interesting in the eyes of all the ladies. He had been engaged to Captain Harville's sister, and was now mourning her loss. They had been a year or two waiting for fortune and promotion, 
Fortune came, his prize money as lieutenant being great. Promotion, too, came at last, but Fanny Harville did not live to see it. She had died the preceding summer while he was at sea. Captain Wentworth believed it impossible for man to be more attached to woman than poor Bennick had been to Fanny Harville, or to be more deeply afflicted under the dreadful change. He considered his disposition as of the sort which must suffer heavily, uniting very strong feelings with quiet, serious, and retiring manners, and a decided taste for reading and sedentary pursuits. To finish the interest of the story, the friendship between him and the Harvilles seemed, if possible, augmented by the event which closed all, closed all their views of alliance, and Captain Bennock was now living with them entirely. Captain Harville had taken his present house for half a year, his taste and his health and his fortune all directing him to a residence inexpensive and by the sea, and the grandeur of the country and the retirement of Lyme in the winter appeared exactly adapted to Captain Bennock's state of mind. The sympathy and goodwill excited towards Captain Bennock was very great. And yet, said Anne to herself, as they now moved forward to meet the party, he has not, perhaps, a more sorrowing heart than I have. I cannot believe his prospects so blighted forever. He is younger than I am, younger in feeling, if not in fact, younger as a man. He will rally again and be happy with another. They all met and were introduced. Captain Harville was a tall, dark man with a sensible, benevolent countenance, a little lame, and, a f and from strong features and want of health, looking much older than Captain Wentworth. Captain Bennock looked and was the youngest of the three, and compared with either of them a little man. He had a pleasing face and a melancholy air, just as he ought to have, and drew back from the conversation. Captain Harville, though not equally Captain Wentworth in manner though not equaling Captain Wentworth in manners, was a perfect gentleman, unaffected, warm, and obliging. Mrs. Harville, a degree less polished than her husband, seemed, however, to have a, the same good feelings, and nothing could be more pleasant than their desire of considering the whole party as friends of their own, because the friends of Captain Wentworth were more kindly hospitable than their entry, entreaties for their all promising to dine with them. The dinner, already ordered at the inn, was at last, though unwillingly, accepted as an, as an excuse, and they seemed almost hurt that Captain Wentworth should have brought any such party to Lyme without considering it as a thing of course that they should dine with them. There was so much attachment to Captain Wentworth in all this, and such a bewitching charm and a degree of hospi hospitality so uncommon, so unlike the usual style of give-and-take invitations and dinners of formality and display, that Anne felt her spirits not likely to be benefited by an increasing acquaintance among his brother officers. These would have been all my friends, was her thought, and she had to struggle against a great tendency to lowness. On quitting the cob, they all went indoors with their new friends and found rooms so small as none of but those who invite from the heart could think capable of accommodating so many. Anne had a moment's astonishment on the subject herself, and it was soon lost in the pleasanter feelings which sprang from the sight of all the ingenious contrivances and nice arrangements of Captain Harville, to turn the actual space to the best possible account, to supply the de deficiencies of lodging house furniture and defend the windows and doors against the winter storms to be expected. 
the varieties in the fitting up of the rooms where the common necessities necessaries provided by the owner in the common indifferent plight were contrasted with some few articles of a rare species of wood excellently worked up and with something curious and valuable from all the distant countries captain harville had visited were more than amusing to anne connected as it um as it all was with his profession the fruit of his labors the effect of its influence on his habits the picture of repose and domestic happiness it presented made it to her a something more or less than gratification. Captain Harville was no reader, but he had contrived excellent accommodations and fashioned very pretty shelves for a tolerable collection of well-bound volumes, the property of Captain Bennock. His lameness prevented him from taking much exercise, but a mind of usefulness and ingenuity seemed to furnish him with constant employment within. He drew, he varnished, he carpentered, he glued, he made toys for the children, he fashioned new netting needles and pins with improvements, and if everything else was done, sat down to his large fishing net in one corner of the room. Anne thought she felt great happiness behind her when they quitted the house, and Louisa, from by whom she found herself walking, burst forth into raptures of admiration and delight on the character of the navy. Their friendliness, their brotherliness, their openness, their uprightness, protesting that she was convinced of sailors having more worth and warmth than any other set of men in England, that they only knew how to live, and they only deserved to be respected and loved. They went back to dress and dine, and so well had the scheme answered already that nothing was found amiss, though its being so entirely out of season and no thoroughfare of lime and the no expectation of company had brought many apologies from the heads of the inn. Anne found herself by this time growing so much more hardened to being in Captain Wentworth's company that she had at first imagined could ever be, that the sitting down to the same table with him now, and the interchange of the common civilities attending on it, they never got beyond, was become a mere nothing. The nights were too dark for the ladies to meet again till the morrow, but Captain Harville had promised them a visit in the evening, and he came, bringing his friend also, which was more than had been expected, <clears throat> it having been agreed that Captain Bennock had all the appearance of being oppressed by the presence of so many strangers. He ventured among them again, however, though his spirit certainly did not seem fit for the mirth of the party in general. While Captains Wentworth and Harville led the talk on one side of the room, and, by recurring to former days, supplied anecdotes in abundance to occupy and entertain the others. It fell to Anne's lot to be placed rather apart with Captain Bennock, and a very good impulse of her nature obliged her to begin an acquaintance with him. He was shy and disposed to abstraction, but the engaging mildness of her countenance and gentleness of her manners soon had their effect, and Anne was well repaid the first trouble of exertion. He was evidently a young man of considerable taste in reading, though principally in poetry, and besides the persuasion of having given him at least an evening's indulgence in the discussion of subjects, which his usual, usual companions had probably no concern in, she had the hope of being of real use to him in some suggestions as to the duty and benefits of struggling against affliction, which had naturally grown out of their conversation. For, though shy, he did not seem reserved. It had rather rather the appearance of feeling glad to burst their usual restraints, 
and having talked of poetry, the richness of the present age, and gone through a brief comparison of opinion as to the first-rate poets, trying to ascertain whether Marmion or the Lady of the Lake were to be preferred, and how ranked the Jower and the Bride of Abydos, and moreover how the Jower was to be pronounced, he showed himself so intimately acquainted with all the tenderest songs of the one poet, and of all the impassioned descriptions of hopeless agony of the other, he repeated with such tremulous feeling the various lines which imagined a broken heart or a mind destroyed by wretchedness, and looked so entirely as if he meant to be understood, that she ventured to hope he did not always read only poetry, and to say that he thought it that she thought it was the um, misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly. His looks showed him not pained, but pleased with this allusion to his situation. She was emboldened to go on, and feeling in herself the right of seniority of mind, she ventured to recommend a larger allowance of prose in his daily study, and on being requested to particularize, mentioned such works of our best moralists, such collection of the finest letters, such memoirs of characters of worth and suffering, as occurred to her at the moment, as calculated to rouse and fortify the mind by the highest pre precepts and the strongest examples of moral and religious endurances. Captain Bennick listened attentively, and seemed grateful for the interest implied, and though with a shake of the head, and sighs which declared his little faith in the efficacy of any books on grief like this, he noted down the names of those she recommended, and promised to procure and read them. When the evening was over, Anne could not but be amused at the idea of her coming to Lyme, to preach patience and resignation to a young man whom she had never seen before, nor could she help feeling, on more serious reflection, that, like any other great moralists and preachers, she had been eloquent on a point in which her own conduct would ill bear examination. Chapter 12 Anne and Henrietta, finding themselves the earliest of the party the next morning, agreed to stroll down to the sea before breakfast. They went to the sands to watch the flowing of the tide, which a fine southeasterly breeze was bringing in with all the grandeur which so flat a shore admitted. They praised the, the morning, gloried in the sea, sympathized in the delight of the fresh-feeling breeze, and were silent till Henrietta suddenly began again with, "'Oh, yes, I am quite convinced that, with the very few exceptions, the sea air always does good. There can be no doubt of its having been of the greatest service to Dr. Shirley after his illness, last spring twelve month. He declared himself that, he declares himself that coming to Lyme for a month did him more good than all the medicine he took, and that being by the sea always makes him feel young again.' now i cannot help thinking it a pity that he does not live entirely by the sea i do think he had better leave uppercross entirely and fix it lime do you not anne do you not agree with me that it is the best thing he could do both for himself and mrs shirley she has cousins here you know and many acquaintances which would make it cheerful for her and i am sure she would be glad to get a place where she could have medical attendance at hand in case of his having another seizure Indeed, I think it quite melancholy to have such excellent people as Dr. and Mrs. Shirley, who have been doing 
good all their lives, wearing out their last days in a place like Uppercross, where, excepting our family, they seem shut out from the world. I wish his friends would propose it to him. I really think they ought. And, as to procuring a dispensation, there could be no difficulty at this time of his life, and with his character. My only doubt is whether anything could persuade him to leave his parish. He is so very strict and scrupulous in his notions. Over-scrupulous, I must say. Do you, do not you think, Anne, it being very over-scrupulous? Do not you think it is quite a mistake, mistaken point of conscience when a clergyman sacrifices his health for the sake of duties, which may just as well be performed by another person? And at Lyme, too, only seventeen miles off, he would be near enough to hear if people thought they were, there was anything to complain of. Anne smiled more than once to herself during this speech, and entered into the subject as ready to do good by entering into the feelings of a young lady as of, as of a young man, though here it was uh, good at a lower standard, for what could be offered but general acquiescence. She said all that was reasonable and proper on the business, felt the claims of Dr. Shirley to repose as she ought, saw how very desirable it was that he should have some active, respectable young man as a resident curate, and was even courteous enough to hint at the advantage of such resident curates being married. "'I wish,' said Henrietta, very well pleased with her companion, "'I wish Lady Russell lived at Uppercross and were intimate with Dr. Shirley. I have always heard of Lady Russell as a woman of the greatest influence with everybody. I always look upon her as able to persuade a person to anything.' I am afraid of her, as I have told you before, quite afraid of her, because she is so very clever, but I respect her amazingly, and wish we had such a neighbor at Uppercross. Anne was amused by Henrietta's manner of being grateful, and amused also that the course of events and the new interests of Henrietta's views should have placed her friend at all in favor with any of the Mus Musgrove family. She had only time, however, for a general answer, and to wish that such another woman were at Uppercross, before all subjects suddenly ceased, on seeing Louisa and Captain Wentworth coming towards them. They came also for a stroll till breakfast was likely to be ready, but Louisa, recollecting immediately afterwards that she had something to procure at a shop, invited them all to go back with her into the town. They were at her disposal. When they came back to the steps, leading upwards from the beach, a gentleman at gentleman at the same moment preparing to come down politely drew back and stopped to give them way they ascended and passed him and as they passed anne's face caught his eye and he looked at her with a degree of earnest admiration which she could not be insensible of she was looking remarkably well her regular her very regular very pretty features having the bloom and freshness of youth restored by the fine wind which had been blowing on her complexion and by the animation of eye which it had also produced it was evident that the gentleman, completely a gentleman in manner, admired her exceedingly. Captain Wentworth looked round at her instantly in a way which showed his noticing of it. He gave her a momentary glance, a glance of brightness, which seemed to say, That man is struck with you, and even I, at this moment, see something like Anne Elliot again. After attending Louisa through her business and loitering about a little longer, they returned to the inn and Anne, in passing afterwards quickly from her own chamber to the dining-room, had nearly run against the very same gentleman, as he came out of an adjoining apartment. She had before conjectured him to be a stranger like themselves, 
and determined that a well-looking groom who was strolling about near the two inns as they came back should be his servant. Both master and man being in mourning assisted the idea. It was now proved that he belonged to the same inn as themselves, and the second meeting, short as it was, also proved again that the gentleman, by the gentleman's looks, that he thought hers very lovely, and by the readiness and propriety of his apologies, that he was a man of exceeding good, exceedingly good manners. He seemed about thirty, and though not handsome, had an, agree had an agreeable person. Anne felt that she should like to know who he was. They had nearly done breakfast when the sound of a carriage, almost the first they had heard since entering Lyme, drew half the party to the window. It is a gentleman's carriage. A curricle, but only coming round from the stable yard to the front door. Somebody must be going away. It was driven by a servant in mourning. The word cur curricle made Charles Musgrove jump up, that he might compare it to his own. The servant in mourning roused Anne's curiosity, and the whole six were collected to look by the time the owner of the curricle was to be seen issuing from the door amidst the bows and civilities of the household and taking his seat to drive off. "'Ah!' cried Captain Wentworth instantly, and with half a glance at Anne, "'it is the very man we passed.' The Miss Musgroves agreed to it, and having all kindly watched him at, uh, as far up the hill as they could, they returned to the breakfast table. The waiter came into the room soon afterwards." Pray, said Captain Wentworth immediately, can you tell us the name of the gentleman who has just gone away? Yes, sir, a Miss Elliot, a gentleman of large fortune, come in late last night from Sidmouth. Dare say you heard the carriage, sir, while you were at breakfast, and going on now for Crookhern, I, in his way to Bath and London. Elliot? Many had looked on each other, and many had repeated the name, before all this had been gone through even by the small rapidity of a waiter. "'Bless me!' cried Mary. "'It must be our cousin. "'It must be our Mr. Elliot. "'It must, indeed. "'Charles Anne must it not. "'In mourning, you see, just as our Mr. Elliot must be. "'How very extraordinary! "'In the very same inn with us. "'Anne, must not it be our Mr. Elliot, "'my father's next heir? "'Pray, sir,' turning to the waiter, "'did you not he did not you hear did not his servant say whether he belonged to the Kellynch family? No, ma'am. He did not mention no particular family. But he said his master was a very rich gentleman, and would be a baronet some day. There, you see, cried Mary in an ecstasy, just as I said, heir to Sir Walter Elliot. I was sure that that would come out if it was so. Depend upon it that it... That is a circumstance which his servants take care to publish wherever he goes. But Anne only conceive how extraordinary. I wish I had looked at him more. I wish we had been aware in time who it was, that he might have been introduced to us. What a pity that we should not have been introduced to each other. Do you think he had the Elliot countenance? I hardly looked at him. I was looking at the horses. But I think he had something of the Elliot countenance. I wonder the arms did not strike me. Oh! The greatcoat was hanging over the panel and hid the arms, so it did otherwise, I am sure, I, so it did otherwise, I am sure, I should have observed them, and the livery, too. If the servant had not been in mourning, one should have known him by the livery. Putting all these very extraordinary circumstances together, said Captain Wentworth, we must consider it to be the arrangement of providence that you should not be introduced to your cousin. 
When she could command Mary's attention, Anne quietly tried to convince her that their father and Mr. Elliot had not, for many years, been on such, such terms as to make the power of attempting an introduction at all desirable. At the same time, however, it was a secret gratification to herself to have seen her cousin, and to know, to, and to know that the future owner of Kellynch was undoubtedly a gentleman, and had an air of good sense. She would not, upon any account, mention her having met with him the second time, Luckily, Mary did not much attend to their having passed close by him in their earlier walk, but she would have felt quite ill-used by Anne's having actually run against him in the passage and received his very polite excuses, while she had never been near him at all. No, that cousinly little interview must remain a perfect secret. "'Of course,' said Mary, "'you will mention our seeing Mr. Elliot the next time you write to Bath. I think my father certainly ought to hear of it. Do mention all about him.' Anne avoided a direct reply, but it was just the circumstance which she considered as not merely unnecessary to be communicated, but as what ought to be su suppressed. The uh, offense which had been given her father many years back she knew, Elizabeth's particular share in it she suspected, and that Mr. Elliot's idea always produced irritation in both was beyond a doubt. Mary never wrote to Bath herself. All the toil of keeping up a slow and unsatisfactory correspondence with Elizabeth fell on Anne. Breakfast had not been long over when they were joined by Captain and Mrs. Harville and Captain Bennick, with whom they had appointed to take their last walk about Lyme. They ought to be setting off for Uppercross by one, and in the meantime were to be all together and out of doors as long as they could. Anne found Captain Bennick getting near her, as soon as they were all fairly in the street. Their conversation, the preceding evening, did not disincline him to seek her again, and they walked together some time, talking as before of Mr. Scott and Lord Byron, and still as unable as before, and as unable as any other two readers, to think exactly alike of the merits of either, till something occasioned an almost general change against their part amongst their party, and instead of Captain Bennick, she had Mr. Harville by her side. Oh, Captain Harville. "'Miss Elliot,' he said, speaking rather low, "'you have done a good deed in making that poor fellow talk so much. "'I wish he could ha have such company oftener. "'It is bad for him, I know, to be shut up as he is, "'but what can we do? We cannot part.' "'No,' said Anne, "'that, that I can easily believe to be impossible. "'But in time, perhaps, we know what time does in every case of affliction, "'and you must remember, Captain Harville, "'that your uh, friend may yet be called... A young mourner, only last summer, I understand. I, true enough, with a deep sigh, only June. And not known to him, perhaps, so soon. Not till the first week in August, when he came home from the Cape, just made into the grappler. I was at Plymouth, dreading to hear of him. He sent in letters, but the grappler was under orders for Plymouth. There the news must follow him. But who was to tell it? Not I. I would as soon have been run up to the, uh, run up to the yard arm. Nobody could do it but that good fellow, pointing to Captain Wentworth. The Laconia had come into Plymouth the week before. No danger of her being sent to sea again. He stood his chance for the rest, rode up for leave of absence, but without waste, waiting the return, traveled night and day till he got to Portsmouth, rode off to the grappler that instant, and never left the poor fellow for a week. That's what he did, and nobody else could have saved poor James. 
You may think, Miss Elliot, whether he is dear whether he is dear to us. Anne did think on the question with perfect decision, and said as much in reply as her own feelings could accomplish, or as his seemed able to bear, for he was too much affected to renew the subject, and when he spoke again it was of something totally different. Mrs. Harville's giving it as her opinion that her husband would have quite uh, walked enough, would have quite walking enough by the time he reached home, determined the direction of all the party in what was to be their last walk. They would ac accompany them to their door and then return and set off themselves. By all their calculations, there was just time for this, but as they drew near the cob, there was such a general wish to walk along it once more, all were so inclined, and Louisa so soon grew so determined that the difference of a quarter of an hour it was found would be no difference at all so with all the kind leave-taking and all the kind interchange of invitations and promises which must be imagined they parted from captain and mrs harville at their own door and still accompanied by captain bennick who seemed to cling to them to the last proceeded to make the proper adieus to the cob anne found captain bennick again drawing near her Lord Byron's dark blue seas could not fail of being brought forward by their present view, and she gladly gave him all her attention as long as attention was possible. It was soon drawn perforce another way. There was too much wind to make the high part of the new cob pleasant for the ladies, and they agreed to get down the steps to the lower, and all were contented to pass quietly and carefully down the steep flight, except Louisa. She must be jumped down then, jumped down then by Captain Wentworth. In all their walks he had had to jump her from the stiles, the sensation was delightful to her. The hardness of the pavement for her feet made him less willing upon the present occasion. He did it, however. She was safely down, and instantly, to show her enjoyment, ran up the steps to be jumped down again. He advised her against it, thought the jar too great. But no, he reasoned and walked in and talked in vain. She smiled and said, I am determined, I will. He put out his hands. She was too precipitate by half a second. She fell on the pavement on the lower cob and was taken up lifeless. There was no wound, no blood, no visible bruise, but her eyes were closed. She breathed not. Her face was like death, the horror of that moment to all who stood around. Captain Wentworth, who had caught her up, knelt with her in his arms, looking on her with a face as pallid as her own in an agony of silence. "'She is dead! She is dead!' screamed Mary, catching hold of her husband and contributing with her own horror to make him immovable. In an another moment, Henrietta, sinking under the conviction, lost her senses too, and would have fallen on the steps, but for Captain Bennick and Anne, who caught and supported her between them. "'Is there no one to help me?' were the first words which burst from Captain Wentworth in a tone of despair, and as if all his own strength were gone." "'Go to him! Go to him!' cried Anne. "'For heaven's sake, go to him! I can support her myself. Leave me and go to him. Rub her hands, rub her temples. Here are salts. Take them. Take them.' Captain Bennick obeyed, and Charles, at the same moment, disengaging himself from his wife, were there, uh, they were both with him, and Louisa was raised up and supported more firm, firmly between them. And everything was done that Anne had prompted, but in vain.' while Captain Wentworth, staggering against the wall for his support, exclaimed in the bitterest agony, "'Oh, God! Her father and mother!' "'A surgeon,' said Anne. He caught the word. It seemed to rouse him at once, and saying only, 
True, true, a surgeon this instant, was darting away when Anne eagerly suggested, Captain Bennick, would it not be better for Captain Bennick? He knows where a surgeon is to be found. Everyone capable of thinking felt the advantage of the idea, and in a moment, it was all done in rapid moments. Captain Bennick had resigned the poor corpse-like figure entirely to the brother's care, and was off for the town with the utmost rapidity. As to the wretched party left behind, it could scarcely be said that which, which of the three, who were completely rational, were suffering most, Captain Wentworth, Anne, or Charles, who, really a very affectionate brother, hung over Louisa with sobs of grief, and could only turn his eyes from one sister to see the other in a state as insensible, or to witness the hysterical agitations of his wife, calling on him for help which he could not give. Anne, attending with all the strength and zeal and thought which inst instincts supplied to Henrietta, still tried as at intervals to suggest comfort to the others, tried to quiet Mary, to animate Charles, to assuage the feelings of Captain Wentworth. Both seemed to look to her for directions. Anne, Anne, cried Charles, what is to be done next? What in heaven's name is to be done next? Captain Wentworth's eyes were also turned towards her. Had not she better be carried to the inn? Yes, I am sure. Carry her gently to the inn. Yes, yes, to the inn, repeated Captain Wentworth, comparatively collected and eager to be doing something. I will carry her myself. Musgrove, take care of the others. By this time, the report of the accident had spread among the workmen and boatmen about the cob, and many were collected near them, to be useful if wanted, uh, at any rate, to enjoy the sight of a dead young lady, nay, two dead young ladies, for it proved twice as fine as the first report. To some of the best-looking of these good people Henrietta was consigned, for, though partially revived, she was quite helpless, and in this manner, Anne walking by her side and Charles attending to his wife, they set forth, treading back with feelings unutterable, the ground which so lightly, so very lightly, and so light of heart they had passed along. They were not off the cob before the Harvilles met them. Captain Bennick had been seen flying by their house with a countenance which showed something to be wrong, and they had set off immediately, informed and directed as they passed toward the spot. Shocked as Captain Harville was, he brought senses and nerves that could be instantly useful, and a look between him and his wife decided what was to be done. She must be taken to their house. All must go to their house and wait the surgeon's arrival there. They could not listen to scruples. He was obeyed. They were all beneath his roof, and while Louisa, under Mrs. Harville's direction, was conveyed upstairs and given possession of her own bed, assistance, cordials, restoratives were supplied by her husband to all who needed them. Louisa had once opened her eyes, but soon closed them again without apparent consciousness. This had been a proof of life, however, of service to her sister, and Henrietta, though perfectly incapable of being in the same room with Louisa, was kept by the agitation of hope and fear from a return of her own insensibility. Mary, too, was growing calmer. The surgeon was with them almost before it had seemed possible. They were sick with horror while he examined, but he was not hopeless. The head had received a severe contusion, but he had not but he had seen greater injuries recovered from. He was by no means hopeless. He spoke cheerfully. That did not regard, that he did not regard it as a desperate case, that he did not say a few hours must end it, was at first felt beyond the hope of most, 
and the ecstasy of such a reprieve, the rejoicing, deep and silent, after a few fervent ejaculations of gratitude to heaven had been offered, may be conceived. The tone, the look, with which, thank God, was uttered by Captain Wentworth, and was sure could never be forgotten by her, nor the sight of him afterwards, as he sat near a table, leaning over it with folded arms, the face concealed, as if overpowered by the various feelings of his, youth, of his soul, and trying by prayer and reflection to calm them. Louisa's limbs had escaped. There was no injury but to the head. It now became necessary for the party to consider what was best to be done as to their general situation. They were now able to speak to each other and consult. That Louisa must remain where she was, however distressing to her friends to be involving the Harvilles in, su in such trouble, did not admit a doubt. Her removal was impossible. The Harvilles silenced all scruples, and as much as they could, all gratitude. They had looked forward and arranged everything, before the others began to reflect. Captain Bennick must give up his room to them, and get a bed elsewhere, and the whole was settled. They were only concerned that the house could accommodate no more, and yet perhaps by putting the children away in the maid's room, or swinging a cot somewhere, they could hardly bear to think of not finding room for two or three besides, supposing they might wish to stay, though with regard to any attendance on Miss Musgrove, there need not be the least uneasiness in having her to Mrs. in leaving her to Mrs. Harville's care entirely. Mrs. Harville was a very experienced nurse, and her nursery maid, who had lived with her long and gone about with her everywhere, was just such another. Between these two, she could want no possible attendance by day or night, and all this was said with a truth and sincerity of feeling irresistible. Charles, Henrietta, and Captain Wentworth were the three in consultation and for a little while it was only an interchange of perplexity and terror. Uppercross, the necessity of someone's going to Uppercross, the news to be conveyed, how it could be broken to Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove, the lateness of the morning, an hour already gone since they ought to have been off, the impossibility of being in tolerable time. At first they were capable of nothing more than to the purpose, to the, more to the purpose than such exclamations, but, after a while, Captain Wentworth, exerting himself, said, We must be decided, and without the loss of another minute. Every minute is valuable. Some must resolve on being off to, for Uppercross instantly. Musgrove, either you or I must go. Charles agreed, but declared his resolution of not going away. He would be as little encumbrance as possible to Captain and Mrs. Harville, but as to leaving his sister, his sister in such a state, he neither ought nor would. So far it was decided, and Henrietta at first declared the same. She, however, was soon persuaded to think differently. The usefulness of her staying, she, who had not been able to remain in Louisa's room or to look at her without sufferings which made her worse than helpless, she was forced to acknowledge, acknowledge that she could do no good, yet she was still unwilling to be away, till touched by the thought of her father and mother, she gave it up. She consented, she was anxious to be at home. The plan had reached this point when Anne, coming quietly down from Louisa's room, could not but hear what followed, for the parlor door was open. "'Then it is settled, Musgrove,' cried Captain Wentworth, "'that you stay, and that I take care of your sister home. But as to the rest, as to the others, if one stays to assist Mrs. Harville, I think it need be only one. Mrs. Charles Musgrove will, of course, wish to get back to her children. But if Anne will stay, no one so proper, so capable as Anne.' 
She paused a moment to recover from the emotion of hearing herself so spoken of. The other two warmly agreed with what he said, and she then appeared. "'You will stay, I'm sure. You will stay and nurse her,' cried he, turning to her and speaking with a glow, and yet a gentleness, which seemed almost restoring the past. She colored deeply, and he recollected himself, and moved away. She expressed herself most willing, ready, happy to remain. It was what she had been thinking of and wished to be allowed to, to do. A bed on the floor in Louisa's room would be sufficient for her, if Mrs. Harville would but think so. One thing more, and all seemed arranged. Though it was very rather desirable that Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove should be previously alarmed by some such some share of delay, yet the time required by the Uppercross horses to take them back would be a dreadful ex uh, extension of suspense, and Captain Wentworth proposed, and Charles Musgrove's, Musgrove agreed, that it would be much better for him to take a chaise from the inn and leave Mr. Musgrove's carriage and horses to be sent home the next morning early, when there would be the f further advantage of sending an account of Louisa's night. Captain Wentworth now hurried off to get everything ready, on his part, and to be soon followed by the two ladies. When the plan was made known to Mary, however, there was an end of all peace in it. She was so wretched and so vehement, complained so much of injustice in being expected to go away, instead of Anne, Anne, who was nothing to Louisa, which she was her sister, and had the right, best right to stay in Henrietta's stead. Why was not she to be as useful as Anne, and to go home without Charles, too, without her husband? No, it was too unkind, and in short she said more than her husband could long withstand, and as none of the others could oppose when he gave her way, there was no help for it. The change of Mary for Anne was inevitable. Anne had never submitted more reluctantly to the jealous and ill-judging claims of Mary, but so it must be, and they set off for the town, Charles taking care of his sister and Captain Bennick attending to her. She gave a moment's recollection, as they hurried along, to the little circumstances which the same spots had witnessed earlier in the morning. There she had listened to Henrietta's schemes for Dr. Shipley's leaving Uppercross. Farther on she had first seen Mr. Elliot. A moment seemed all that could uh, now be given to anyone but Louisa, for those uh, who were wrapped up in her welfare. Captain Bennick was uh, most considerably attentive to her, and it united as they all seemed by the distress of the day, she felt an increasing degree of goodwill towards him, and a pleasure even in thinking that it might perhaps be the occasion of continuing their acquaintance. Captain Wentworth was on the watch for them, and a chaise and four in waiting stationed for their convenience in the lowest part of the street, but his inevitable surprise and vexation at the substitution of one sister for the other, the change of his countenance, the astonishment, the expressions begun and suppressed, with which Charles was listened to, made but a mortifying reception of Anne, or must at least convince her that he was that she was valued only as she could be useful to Louisa. She endeavored to be composed and to be just. Without emulating the feelings of an Emma towards her Henry, she would have attended on Louisa with a zeal above the common claims of regards for his sake, and she hoped he would not long be so unjust as to suppose she would shrink unnecessarily from the office of a friend. In the meanwhile, she was in the carriage. He had handed them both in and placed himself between them, and in this manner, under these circumstances full of astonishment and emotion to Anne, she quitted Lyme. 
how the long stage would pass, how it was to affect their manners, what was what was to be their sort of intercourse, could she could not foresee. It was all quite natural, however. He was devoted to Henrietta, always turning towards her, and when he spoke at all, always with the view of supporting her hopes and raising her spirits. In general, his voice and manner were studi studiously calm. To spare Louisa from agitation seemed the governing principle. Once only, when she had been grieving over the last ill-judged, ill-fated walk to the cob, bitterly lamenting that it ever had been thought of, he burst forth, forth as if wholly overcome. "'Don't talk of it! Don't talk of it!' he cried. "'Oh, God!' that I had not given way to her at the fatal moment. Had I done as I ought, but so eager and so resolute, dear sweet Louisa. And wondered whether it ever occurred to him now to question the justness of his own previous opinion as to the universal felicity and advantage of firmness of character, and whether it might not strike him that, like all other qualities of the mind, it should have its proportions and limits. She thought it could scarcely escape him to feel that a persuadable temper might sometimes be as much in favor of happiness as a very resolute character. They got on fast. Anne was astonished to recognize the same hills and the same objects so soon. Their actual speed, heightened by some dread of the conclusion, made the road appear but half as long as on the day before. It was growing quite dusk, however, before they were in the neighborhood of Upper Cross, and there had been total silence among them for some time, Henrietta leaning back in the corner with a shawl over her face, giving the hope of her having cried herself to sleep. When, as they were going up their last hill, Anne found herself all at once addressed by Captain Wentworth. In a low, cautious voice, he said, I have been considering what we had best do. She must not appear at first. She could not stand it. I have been thinking whether you had not better remain in the carriage with her, while I go in and break it to Mr. and Mrs. Musgrove. Do you think this is a good plan? She did. He was satisfied and said no more. But the remembrance of the appeal remained a pleasure to her, as a proof of friendship and, as, and of deference for her judgment, a great pleasure. And when it became a sort of parting proof, its value did not lessen. When the distressing communication at Upper Cross was over, and he had seen the father and mother quite as composed as could be hoped, and the, fa and the daughter all the better for being with them, he announced his intention of returning in the same carriage to Lyme, and when the horses were baited, he was off.